from WDEV. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us this Friday, December 22nd. Today, a varied lineup for you as we head into the holiday weekend. A reminder that I'm broadcasting live from the studios of KWMR Community Radio in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks to them for that. Today on the show, COVID and masks, an update. It seems that dozens of people in my life and around the country have COVID or have had it in the last few months. I can't get away from that conversation. It happens every single time I'm talking to somebody. And at least in the younger generation, the wearing of masks seems to have almost disappeared. What's going on? We talk with the Vermont founder, uh, semi-founder, actually. She said she's uh, only uh, arrived on day two of um, of a national nonprofit that handed out millions of masks during the pandemic and is now shutting down operations. We'll get her take on the latest COVID news. We'll talk with our Washington reporter, Bob Ney, about the latest at the White House, Congress, Israel, Hamas, and all things D.C. And we will do a legislative preview with Ann Wallace-Allen at Seven Days. What's coming up when legislators return to Montpelier in January? Hint, a lot. And lastly, Vermont Viewpoint film and TV critic Keenan Ellis live in studio. What are his favorite holiday movies and TV shows? We will get his recommendations coming up at 1030. If you listen to my promo at about uh, 5, uh, at about uh, 820, you, you, you heard my, uh, my uh, candidate, uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas. Uh, the as, as Lee Cattell said, the Linus speech from the stage. Uh, we'll review that with Keenan, and I'll probably give that a watch uh, this weekend. It's a lot to get to, and of course, we take your calls at 244-1777. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. You can hear us on your AM and FM dial and worldwide on the web at wdevradio.com. Just click on the listen button. That's a message to my mother in New Jersey. And if you miss the show, you can catch up with a podcast that we make available very soon after the show ends. All that and more today on Vermont Viewpoint. But first, what a year it's been. The tribal breakup of our politics and culture continued. We continue to grapple with the impacts of COVID, which has changed the way a lot of us work and live. We learned, for example, that a lot of people do not want to go to an office park and work all day in a cubicle. We would rather work from home or some third space and dump the commute. We learned that artificial intelligence is real and that it will have a massive impact on our lives. We learned that climate change is real. We can argue about the details of the science, but flooding in Vermont in July and again this week tells us that something is up and we'd better act to strengthen ourselves. We learned that a lot of what we took for granted for a long time doesn't really work as well anymore. It seems our mental health system doesn't work as well, that our defense against fentanyl doesn't work as well, that our policy on home homeless neighbors doesn't work as well that our healthcare doesn't work as well as it should, that we don't have enough homes, and the homes we do have are not affordable for our kids. COVID showed us that if we don't have a strong civil society, schools, police, and fire, 
sewer systems, good buildings, roads, tax policy, schools, good journalism, honest government, and all the rest, things break down. Our goal on this show is to take on all these issues, talk to the experts and others who can help inform us about some answers, or at least how to ask the right questions. We're going to keep doing that here in 2024. Next week, we'll look ahead to the next year and set our agenda for all the shows we'll do, the guests we will invite on the show, and the questions we should be asking. I'll add some predictions along the way for what I think are the big issues coming up. We are lucky here in Vermont. We avoid many of the problems of other places. Overall, we have honest government. We can have real conversations in a democratic fashion in our communities. I saw the two community meetings in Burlington over the past few weeks about public safety there. And I saw this week a Republican governor welcome Afghan refugees to Vermont this week. The Vermont Afghan Alliance, which was launched in 2022 and until Thursday had no offices, supports Afghan refugees who are resettling here. It provides the refugee community with a variety of services like translations or assistance, driving lessons geared towards women who were banned from driving in their home country. To date, three, about 300 Afghans have resettled here. And standing next to Democratic Senator Peter Welch and former Democratic Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray, who is the CEO of the Vermont Afghan Alliance, the mere fact that Republican Governor Phil Scott was there at all says a lot about our state and what we have built here. And then Scott said this about Afghan refugees coming to Vermont. Quote, I've always believed that the United States and Vermont have a moral obligation to be welcoming of people across the globe, around the globe, seeking a better life and new opportunities. Once we welcome new Vermonters to our communities, it's critical that they are supported and welcomed with open arms, unquote. We have our problems here, but our political leadership standing together to welcome refugees from war-torn countries, regardless of political affiliation, that's not a bad way to enter the holiday season. A Republican like Phil Scott standing shoulder to shoulder with Democrats, Peter Welch and Molly Gray, again, not a bad way to enter the, enter the holiday season. To quote Adam Sorkin in the famous uh, TV show, The West Wing, with the clothes on their backs, they came, came through a storm, and the ones that didn't die want a better life, and they want it here still. We'll be right back after this break. We are back. Uh, when the pandemic hit in 2020, a woman named Ann Miller living in Essex, Vermont, needed to act. So she and some other volunteers launched Project N95. Miller assembled a list of heavy-hitting software experts, political consultants, fundraisers, logistics people, and others to put as many high-quality masks on faces as possible for the least possible cost. Using her expertise in healthcare around medical devices and other innovations, she and her team delivered masks and other PPE, including COVID tests and other equipment to those in need. More than three years later, 37 million items of PEE, PPE and donations of over 5 million. Now, Miller has decided to end the organization. Mission accomplished. 
or was it? Ann Miller joins me now. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. It's nice to talk with you. Okay. I, I, <laughs> I've, I've talked to you a lot about this subject, and I kind of feel like I'm talking to a celebrity and hero. Um, do you feel like that? Uh, really, uh, I don't feel like that, but I appreciate the sentiment. Uh, you know, we all came together. Project N95 has been an enormous team effort, and it was marvelous that a whole bunch of people all over the United States, some in Europe, one in Africa, all came together to um, help people in that crisis moment where you know there was no option, where people were wearing garbage bags, they were sewing things, they were reusing things beyond belief. So it was um, an incredible team experience. So, Anne, you have decided to close Project N95. So uh, let's we can we'll get into more of the detail uh, later. But give us the headline. What what led to the decision? Uh, so for many people, COVID is over, and um, Project N95 was always funded by purchases that people made on our vetted marketplace or by uh, donations. And over time, people have decided not to wear masks. And we've been losing money all all year. And it just got to the point where we couldn't afford to keep operating. So we closed. Our final, we don't have a final day yet, but we stopped our, our sales uh, last week. And we stopped taking requests for free masks um, this week. So we still have a lot to do before we're all said and done. It's kind of ironic that it's in the middle of the JN1 uh, outbreak, but uh, the re- economic realities meant that we couldn't keep going. Yeah, so let me throw my uh, own children under the bus here. Let's see. I've got uh, four kids. Uh, one of whom works in Washington, D.C., in Congress, and therefore wears a mask a lot uh, to protect those around her in a tight space. But the other three, uh, it's as you're right, it's as if COVID doesn't exist anymore. Uh, they get they'll get it. Uh, they recover. They're in the they're in that camp of kind of it's, it's like the flu. Um, and it, it hasn't stopped this new, this new strain has not stopped them from doing anything. And yet it seems like everybody I talk to, uh, either has had COVID in the last month or knows somebody who has had it. So how are you experiencing this new strain and the, and the, 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 the notion among the sort of next generation that this is just no longer exists? It's one of these things for me when you think about, um, like, if it doesn't happen to you, it's not real, right? So right. Uh, the risk of long COVID to me is, like, one of the really profound um, risks that are associated with this virus. And I just think, you know, there's so many stories of people who are really incapacitated, professors who are unable to work, executives, lawyers who are either have brain fog or they have extreme fatigue, you know, exertional malaise. They can't they can't function like they used to. And the research on long COVID shows that even if you recover, you usually don't return to baseline. So you you, know, you reset to a 
lower level of functioning. So maybe you walk the dog for, you know, a mile and now you walk the dog for a half mile, things like that. But um, the concern I have is more about like the risk. So each time you get a COVID infection, my son's had two. He tells me routinely that COVID is over. Um, and, you know, I could, I'm worried that the next one he gets, maybe that will impact him and he'll get long COVID. You don't know. That's the thing. It's like Russian roulette. You just don't know. Yeah. And now neither of you, you nor I are, are doctors, but right. um, we sort of play them uh, on, TV on radio. This. On radio. I've had uh, the lead COVID writer, uh, Porva Mandavili, on the show from the New York mm-hmm. Times. And, you know, she warned me months ago on this show that uh, when, when, the, uh, when the emergency declaration about COVID was going away, she just talked about how how this is going to uh, put people in a false sense of security. And I mean, are, are we do we have that going on now? I, 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 and the other question I want to ask you is: You just said that it doesn't matter whether you're young or old. COVID, uh, long COVID is a yeah. is a possibility even for young people. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And actually, long COVID actually affects, you know, it, it's most common in people who have a mild case and who are younger because that's the majority of the population. So long COVID uh, and COVID really doesn't, uh, it, it, it doesn't have any biases, right? It's, it goes for everybody. There's not any, uh, we don't know yet why some people don't get long COVID and some people do, but everyone is at risk for it. Yeah, it is. That is such a, you're right, such a Russian roulette uh, situation. Uh, and let's go back to 2020. Take us back to the the appearance of uh, COVID and the start of the pandemic. What were you doing and, and what led you to be part of Project N95? Yeah, so I'm a healthcare consultant that works uh, commercializing new medical products and I heard Andy Slavitt, I read Andy Slavitt on Twitter. I was watching the news and I saw that um, this organization was starting and I thought, I think this is going to be a big deal and how can I help, right? And I, knowing about medical products and the regulatory framework that um, governs them, I thought that I could be useful in getting N95s to healthcare workers. And so there was a flood, a flood of counterfeit products on the market that um, people claimed because they were registered with the FDA, that that somehow they were approved by the FDA. And so we spent our early days trying to sort and find authentic um, N95 respirators to get to healthcare workers because really the whole system collapsed, right? The states couldn't get authentic N95s. Major hospital systems and GPOs couldn't get them. It was a real... um, it was a pretty difficult time, right? And people were improvising and uh, that situation has settled down. But at the beginning of the pandemic, we were really focused on giving access to healthcare workers, get N95s. And, and say from there, and so we focused on getting essential workers access. And then from there, it's like, well, if your work's essential to your, get your health benefits or your work's essential to put food on the table, you too should be protected. And so over time, we expanded our mission to serve everyone. So tell us about an N95. What makes an N95 different or better than what you get at your local 
pharmacy or Walmart? Yeah, I mean, so an N95, except with one exception, all N95s have head straps. And that's the number one way that you can tell whether it's an N95 or some other variety. There's really the Korean version and the Korean standard and the Chinese standard. But the N95 has an electrostatic layer in the middle, which sounds like people think of it as, a, as like a strainer, but it's not really a strainer. It's like a spider web that when the particles come in, it's able to attract those particles and trap them so you don't actually inhale um, those virus particles. You also don't exhale them. They get trapped in the media, and you can wear one for a long time without like the um, – the respirator getting clogged. But this is the main feature of an N95 in my mind, besides being a really super um, effective way to avoid inhaling an aerosol um, hazard, is that it's a very well-regulated product. So the um, U.S. government, the um, NIOSH, which is part of the CDC, they make people test every production lot to make sure that it still performs as expected. And so you're supposed to have more than 95% filtration of these very small particles. And so compared to the KN95, which is a really common ear loop standard, that product, that product isn't regulated. So there were a lot of counterfeit products in that department, in that area. So um, N95 is just a really effective way to stay safe. Yeah. And now, you you mentioned the head strap versus the ear loop. I mean, I never see, almost never see anybody wearing the head strap N95 anymore. Uh, it, I, mean, I, I guess it's a comfort issue. Uh, and the, you know, what's the difference between the head strap N95 and an ear loop uh, mask? Uh, is it that they it's just not tight enough to your face and the particles can get in there around yeah, the, on the, the sides. Itself. Yeah, exactly. It, it's like they have a fancy word for it, like total inward leakage. But the, the, the issue is that fit matters, right? It's not just uh, filtration. So uh, by having a well-fitting uh, respirator, then you're able to um, be sure that you know nothing's getting in or out. And um, there's an adhesive one that sticks to your face like a big post-it note. And that one is like something that I personally like when I'm traveling on an airplane because it just, you just like set it and forget it. Uh, so you don't have to even worry about any leakage at all. You have to kind of peel it back for the TSA guy. But after that, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty easy. So, um, and I know that people think that the ear loops are more comfortable because they're not on your head. But if you wear one for any length of time, your ears often get tired of having a strap on them and the head strap ends up being more comfortable. But okay. as long as it's well-fitting, I mean, that's the most important thing. Like, even if you're wearing a um, an ear loop one, just make sure that it's not, you know, there's not leakage on the sides. Like, you you can blow out and see if you're feeling air escaping on the sides. That's not a good sign. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, personal behavior changes. I mean, I, I had a chance recently to go to a NBA basketball game, and I I declined. It just, I, I said to myself, in an indoor space with 20,000 people, uh, you know, all, you know, yelling and screaming, I think, I think it's just at my age, it's probably not the right thing to do. I could have worn an N95, but I didn't want to sit for three hours in a, in that 
indoor arena with an N95 around my head. So I just didn't bother. And I, you know, that's an extension of sort of behavior changes that have been going on since 2020, right? Yeah, I I recently went to St. Mike's. They had a the South Burlington Choir was you know singing a holiday program, and I went there and there were it was standing room only, so there were probably you know 150 people in there plus the choir of 70, and you know I was one of a half dozen who were wearing I was wearing a KF94 an ear loop mask, but um, it, I was delighted to get out. I just didn't want to have the risk of um, getting sick. Like, I don't want to have flu. I don't want measles, tuberculosis. <laughs> I don't want COVID. It's like, it doesn't bother me to go in and sit for an hour and a half. And, um, but I also yeah. wasn't in an auditorium, you know, in an uh, arena with 20,000 people. I probably would have made the same decision. But then your, but then your kids look at you uh, cross-eyed because you're the only person wearing mask, a mask in the room. A hundred percent. Yes. I went to the school function and there were probably a hundred people there. And I was one of, you know, three or four of my, you know, my kids were like, what the heck, mom? (laughs) So I, you know, it's like, we have to all make our choices. I prefer to be active and do stuff. I just don't want to have the exposure. And like, I'm not like a super, you know, I don't, I'm not a, you know, I, get out and do lots of stuff. But when I'm going to go into a place where there's a high number of indoor space with a lot of people, I'm just going to take precautions. I don't a hundred percent wear it every single time that I walk into the grocery store. You know, I keep it on my steering wheel. I try to, but sometimes I forget, but just try to be careful. Yeah. Uh, And I want to go back and talk about, Oh, by the way, if you want to call, in and talk to Ann Miller about masks and masking and and uh, the policies around that and how she did what she did, which was truly amazing. 37 million items of PPE and donations of over 5 million masks uh, to people. Um, give us a call, 244-1777, 244-1777. And can, let's go back to 2020 and the outset of the pandemic. Um, I just, from time to time, I just catch myself and think, wow, it, it, there was a moment there where we sort of all were unclear, uncertain, and you know, you just thought the worst that we were we were all going to get sick, and that there was no way out of this thing. Take us back to your thinking back then. Uh, you know, there, the thing that uh, we really focused on was just that. Uh, the people that we rely on to keep, you know, the healthcare professionals that we rely on to keep us, you know, safe, they weren't able, you know, to, to be safe. So how could our healthcare system work if we didn't have the people who give care protected? And, you know, it it was just such a tumultuous time and there was no, there was no really good domestic, there was a small domestic supply and it was really hard um, to get quality products. And, you know, I, I, I remember very early in the very beginning part of the pandemic, I talked with Mike Bowen. Um, he was at Prestige Ameritech and he had a very grim view of what was happening in the United States and that it was a repeat of SARS-1 and that like we were going to spin up capacity and do all these things. And then we were going to like, you know, trash it and not use it. Right. And, and return back to where we were. And he was very grim about the prospects. And I thought, wow, he is 
really burned out. <laughs> and uh, now here I am, like almost four years later, and what Mike Bowen predicted that we would develop capacity and then let it you know, go to waste is exactly what we've done. We had American manufacturers spin up capacity, produce really good quality NIOSH-rated respirators, go through the hassle of getting NIOSH certification, and then the government didn't give them any contracts, and uh, they had very little access. And so we gave domestic manufacturers access to people in the market by creating a marketplace, and we advocated for domestic manufacturers, but in the end, most of the domestic manufacturers that were created during the pandemic have closed, filed for bankruptcy. Same things happened with gloves. We actually, as a, as a country, you know, us as taxpayers, we funded domestic glove manufacturing and none of that capacity ever got spun up. Uh, but we have like half finished glove factories. It's, it's just astounding that we are in a place where people would rather buy the cheapest possible mask made overseas than buy a domestically sourced product where we're supporting domestic jobs. You know, we have the capacity for the next outbreak. You know, it's just it's mind boggling. Honestly, I think about it a lot. I can't explain it. <laughs> Well, uh, but let, let's try because it, we do a lot of government policy and politics on this show. We try to have fun doing it, and, and uh, we try to be as clear as we can. So what you're saying, and we've talked about this off the air as well, uh, so most of the masks that people have on their faces are not made in America. They are made in China. Is that right? They're made in China. There's some made in Mexico. There's, um, but most of them um, are made in China. Even some of the big brand names that people know, like, are made in an offshore factory. And so when the pandemic hit, right, there were no raw materials. Everything has to go in a container across the ocean, right? And that takes time. That delayed the you know arrival of masks, and we couldn't. In this case, China needed the masks as much as we did. So, you know, we couldn't get access. I mean, we shouldn't have a product that is so important to the well-being of people and healthcare workers rely on a foreign source of supply. It doesn't make sense. So is is that and and I think the the blame for this can be shared among I mean, this this happened in the Trump administration, it happened in the Biden administration. What what is it about? And boy, this gets deep. What is it about government that is it is? It's not that they don't care at the at the White House, for example, and at the CDC, and the FDA. Um, why do you think, in all your experience, that this happened? Why did we not effectively create a, a, a domestic source of N95 masks? It, it's um, my first instinct isn't go to, isn't to go to like a grim kind of view on things, but there seems to right. be policies in place, right? Like you would need to be able to have three years of financials in order to bid on a government contract, but right. you've only been in business for two years, so you don't even qualify for um, that process because. 
you know, you don't meet those criteria. So I think there are some kind of, while they are make sense that you don't want to deal with an unreliable source of supply, that the some of the bidding rules on contracts uh, excluded domestic manufacturers. And there were a lot of little things in, you know, in place. And then, of course, there are very well entrenched companies who have, you know, strong relationships with contracting officers. And that probably influenced how things went as well. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, and we are so conditioned in this country to want the, the cheapest, uh, most, you know, inexpensive, yeah. easily available model. Somebody asked the other day on social media, like, is this mask any good? And like we because I could look at the picture and tell them like it didn't meet the standard. Right. But it was like two for ninety nine cents. And I'm like, you can actually get a really good quality American made product, a KN95 style, an ear loop style mask. You can get it made in the United States for that price. And so, like, why would you go and get some, you know, on sale product of unknown you know, origin? to protect your health. We're not talking about like a style feature, right? I'm not talking about like, you know, my reading glasses. I'm talking about something that, you know, like you don't want to get a bargain and sacrifice your health in, at the same time. So, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, you, you must have, you must have gotten dragged into the politics of mask wearing uh, it's got to be one of the more unpleasant arguments, uh, you know, the, the shutdown, uh, Anthony Fauci, uh, uh, should we be where should should we have masks on the faces of kids in school all day? Uh, I mean, I still get asked about that one. Uh, where where do you stand on all of that? Or do you just prefer to avoid it altogether? <laughs> you know, I have been trolled a bunch over um over masks. And I, uh, for sometimes I would just stick my head in the sand, but I've stopped doing that. And I just like take it head on. I don't, um, I, there are lots of, when you think about what a, what a seatbelt does for you, like the seatbelt helps to protect you, but it's not the only source of protection, right? You have an airbag, you have bumpers. Some of the cars have like lane detection, right? There are many layers to the protection and the idea that a mask is the only source of protection, that's a fallacy. And I think it's one of the big problems of the pandemic that we said vaccines are the answer. Just get a vaccine, you won't get COVID. Well, clearly that's not true. It will reduce the severity of your case, but it doesn't keep you from getting it. And so it's like, yeah, there's vaccines, there's, there's treatment, there's tests, there's masks. But there's also like air purifiers. You can reduce the viral load in a classroom by running an air purifier. We try to put air purifiers in classrooms and as a way to like pivot our organization to a broader portfolio in order to stay alive. And I say like, you know, jokingly, but I mean, we couldn't sell masks to schools and we couldn't give away air purifiers to them. So it's just um, there's a lot of resistance to this kind of change. But I, I mean, I have an air purifier in my my kid's room. And when we have when he had COVID, like I ran that, you know, sealed off the room. So his virus wasn't circulating in the house. But I mean, there are lots of layers. Masks are not the only answer. And they're just one of the tools. It's that Swiss cheese model that people talked about. 
But, you know, the other thing that I think we really made a mistake is that public health made lots of mistakes in the pandemic. We said it wasn't airborne when it was. We were afraid to come forward with that as a as a country or as a world, actually, WHO. So we made mistakes and we haven't been willing to admit those mistakes and make a mid-course correction, right? We haven't, I, so I think that we have introduced, I think the next pandemic will be worse because people have lost trust in what the government, the CDC has to say and what um, you know, public health has to say. And so they're just like, they don't believe anything that's being told to them and they question everything and there isn't, um, that's one of the things that Project N95, we tried to create trust. We stepped in, we verified this product. We know it came from the factory. We know it performs because we set up our own testing operation. We know it performs to the standard. And we, you know, we stand behind what we, what we do. In the, early in the pandemic, someone bought 5,000 respirators from us, and they didn't fit her, her well and the people in her practice. And we said, take them back. Oh, we'll take them back. We want you to have what you need, right? So it has been very much an, a thing about uh, saying what we're going to do and then doing what we're going to say, what we said we would do, right? So to have that trust to say, we will, if you can't afford a mask, we will give you one, you know, for free. We don't ask you to qualify, right? We'll just give it to you. And we have actually given a lot of masks actually to the Vermont Center for Independent Living. They've been, we do a lot of distributions to nonprofits all around the country. So I think that by not being honest with the American people, it has just created even more um, divisiveness. And that's for me one of the real, like, like I said it in one of these newspaper articles, I think last week. It, it's naive on my part, but I really thought that people would come together to try to protect one another so that we could go about and live our lives. And like the idea of having a shutdown and everybody staying home and kids wearing masks in school, we, we need to have a way where we're able to live our lives, but still be safe. And in the time we have left, we talked about your frustration with uh, people thinking that the uh, pandemic is over and government's handling of of it, well, there must have been some great moments for you in running this organization. Give us a couple. Wonderful moments. Uh, and keeping in mind that we're a fully virtual organization. So most of the people that I've worked with for the last almost four years, most of them I've never met. So uh, for sure, uh, being able to uh, supply Large, like we have done distributions for migrant farmers for uh, in one of our early, we did a, a program with Harvard um, Center for Health and Human Rights, and we did a large distribution over a million um, and 95s were distributed in 2022, I guess. Uh, we we did that, you know, that program, and there were so many fabulous people, Reverend Barber's organization, um, all sorts of uh, he's a moral. I've forgotten what his his uh, Reverend Barber's organization does, but we've done right. all yeah. these different groups that we've that we've worked with. And I think um, the thing about Project N95 also is like, I mean, we're it was the opportunity to lead an organization and to 
when you work in a big corporation, there's a certain culture, and we wanted to create a culture that was, like, open and affirming and where people could go about and, like, do their best work. And so, you know, we have dealt with death, you know, among our team and among our team member families, birth, and there's been a lot of really, um, you know, important moments like that. And, uh, you know, we we really love the opportunity to tell our story and get masks to people in need. We have supplied people who live in their cars, who, um, you know, we, homeless shelters uh, all over the country. And it's been really important to us to be able uh, to help people who don't really have, um, aren't able to provide for themselves this kind of safety because these products are expensive. We also offered diagnostic tests for a while, and that was a very, like a fulfilling moment to be able to offer a wider variety of of products. So there's been, uh, these people have become like my community and, you know, it's been, it's part of the loss. The part of the grieving of this closing is that we lose this community of people who really cared to help other people never having met one another and not meeting any of the people that we serve. And, uh, and these were volunteers, is that right, Ann? Um, we uh, we had volunteers, and we also had paid staff. In the beginning, when the government was giving a stipend to people who weren't able to work, we had all volunteers. And then over time, we converted to uh, some paid staff and some uh, volunteer staff. So I was a volunteer the whole time. There really isn't wasn't money to pay pay for all the roles because there really just isn't that much money in in mask making. So. And we, we were also given a lot of free services by, like, you know, companies like Zendesk and, you know, really established uh, partners who were able to you know, give us, we were able to, you know, benefit from a lot of free services, and we're grateful for that. Um, so the next chapter what, remains to be seen. Well, let, let, yeah, next chapter. So if if the virus comes back in some virulent form it, are we looking at uh, uh the ability of project n95 to spin back up or is it done forever i think the project will be done forever uh, i think but we have learned a lot in this process and if we were to come back we would do it in a simpler more streamlined way uh, so one of the challenges we have is that we created a marketplace where we have different sellers. That gives us the ability to uh, expand greatly when there's um, when there's a surge, but then also like contract when it's smaller. But uh, it doesn't necessarily give us the lowest price. So there are things that we would do differently going forward. But I think the thing that I really focus on all of this is like coming out of this experience how divided we are as as a country and how the pandemic has sort of exacerbated that right we had a lot of social isolation um, and what can we do to come together more to help one another I know it sounds really like very maybe sophomoric very uh, naive again but I think that there there's a chance for us to say uh, like we have JN1 now, what can we do so that we're not um, we're not infecting our loved ones over Christmas? One thing that's a complete non sequitur, Kevin, but if you haven't followed the wastewater data 
I would recommend to all of your listeners that the wastewater data is a really good way to measure whether or not COVID is high um, in your region. And so you can actually go in and look at it. And there's one like in Vermont, there's four different wastewater sampling sites, and it gives you a good idea of, you know, is, is COVID high where I am or not? And I think that can help inform how you take care of yourself during these different surges. Ann Miller, uh, you're great to join us. Uh, we should pay tribute to you. You probably put, you're responsible for putting more masks on more faces than anybody in the United States. And uh, there's uh, there's no Presidential Medal of Freedom for uh, mask providing, but uh, you should get it. Uh, thank you uh, for joining us. Thanks, Kevin. You know, we did what the government should have done and somehow couldn't. So we were uh, thrilled to be able to serve. Okay. All right. We'll see you down the road. Ann Miller, uh, one of the founders of Project N95, um, and uh, she's great to join us. When we come back, we're going to talk to Bob Ney in Washington, D.C., about the latest in Israel and uh, the Hamas-Israel war and among and other issues in Washington, D.C. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.